Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number seven of the New School Video Podcast produced by FICOM Studios. My name is Candice. I'm the head of education, and I will be co-hosting this episode with Meg, our CEO. This is a really cool episode. We have the opportunity to connect with Georgia Lee Hussey, who's the founder and CEO of Modernist Financial, which is an RA based out of Portland, Oregon. But here's the thing. Georgia is definitely not your typical CEO and founder, and Modernist Financial is not your traditional RA. They've got a million-dollar client minimum, and yet they're a certified B Corp. They've been featured in publications like Goop, and George talks about blending her love for design aesthetic and helping clients shift their money stories so that they can actually live a life that's much more meaningful for them so that they're spending their money. All of those habits are aligned with what they truly value. This conversation is going to blow you away. We're super excited to introduce you to Georgia Lee Hussey. We are so excited to have Georgia Lee Hussey, the CEO of Modernist Financial on the New School Podcast. Hi, Georgia. Welcome. Nice to see you. Nice to see you straight out of Portland. I've been following you for a while, and I think people might not know this as they're listening, but we don't actually know each other. It's not like you're a friend that we know, Um, but I've been following your work for a while, and I thought what you were doing was really interesting. But specifically, I saw your YouTube videos on money stories Mm. and your own money story. At what point did you realize that money stories were important for people, that this Mm. was a big deal, that this was a thing even? Yeah, it's it's such a good question. So when, so I got in, I was an artist before I came into finance, which is a little bit of an unusual path into the industry. And I had grown up, I'd been in run little underground galleries and done installation work, a lot of like guerrilla performance art about feminism and labor, like very much not oriented to finance. Um, I was not making sellable objects at all. (laughs) And um, I, bought a house I couldn't afford in 2006 when I moved back to Portland from New York. And I quickly realized I didn't have financial knowledge. I mean, I just didn't come up in a family that had many resources and the best we could do was sort of shuffle money around to try to pay all the bills, right? Was how, how our family worked and very common for most of America. And I realized when I had this huge mortgage as a single woman that I didn't know how to manage a budget I was on a commission-based income at the time, selling high-end furniture. And so my income was really up and down. And um, you'll love this. I had a 7.5% fixed and an 11.5% arm. Second. So welcome to the prime mortgage crisis. That's how you have no money down and a very bad credit score and get a house. And so what I realized is that I needed to learn about money and just the basics of how do you manage a budget, et cetera. 
And I am a very good autodidact. I'm quite bright in the on the left and the right brains. Um, but I realized that my behavior was not catching up with my knowledge. I could understand how you budget, but the my emotional reality was impeding my success, right? I like to think of it around food as a very similar, easy corollary with spending. It's, um, it's often not about the food. It's about the comfort, the self-soothing and, you know, I, identity, um, the sense of like who we, where we come from, et cetera. And I realized that the same issues I was dealing with in therapy around who I am and where I come from were impeding my financial success. And it was really about, you know, my inherited stories from my family, about who I could be, the inherited stories from my culture about who I could be as a white queer woman and as a creative person. That was the strongest story, honestly. It was at first was money is evil, business is bad, um, wealth is going to undermine everything I believe in politically. I mean, it goes on and on, right? And so that's when I started to come together that when I looked around at my friend group, they were saying the same things. We all had this series of assumptions about the world of money that were unspoken. And a lot of my friends, I've always been very lucky to be around a, people who are very successive, successful in the creative fields. And they would just, they would get a book deal and they would push the money away from them as quickly as possible. Um, and same, you know, record deals, et cetera. And so I was like, there's something that keeping, we're all super smart. Why are we doing this this way? And that's where I started to realize that there was, you know, there, there was a reality that we each needed to dig up if we were going to make take action in a way that was meaningful. And listening to some of your work and watching videos on YouTube, I found it so interesting that all of our own money stories are just so deeply rooted. Mm -hmm. And in listening to your own money story and talking about, you know, your great grandfather and your grandmother and then your mom and thinking about the generations. Mm -hmm. of people and the lineage and the heritage that really impact, you know, you as a mm -hmm. young professional who's mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to pay for your mortgage, right? right? And and so I find that to be just really interesting on its own. Mm -hmm. And then if I think about, you know, what we're trying, what we hope to be able to do with the new school is to help people within the industry understand how to use emotion and how to connect mm -hmm. with and how to be vulnerable as a way to successfully communicate. And so I'm curious to hear, Georgia, your perspective on, you know, just acknowledging that those money stories for every individual are so personal mm. and mm. so deeply rooted. Mm. When you're working with clients, like how do you actually help them acknowledge, understand their money stories, and then work through them as their advisor? Mm. Yeah, we use a uh, we work with a nonprofit called um, Money Quotient, um, and we use their tools and resources. And they take research around theories of adult learning, family of origin theory, um, and behavioral finance research, and say how what is the best method to communicate with clients to help them have their own discoveries? Because um, that one of the reasons I stayed in this business and just started decided to start my own firm is that. There's a very paternalistic approach to advising people. And um, I think it often comes from a good place of, I want to protect you from yourself, which I don't want to be protected from myself. I want to find how to protect myself. I want to be empowered to be my own 
hero in the story. And so um, I think what I like about Money Quotient is it allows any advisor to lean into the tool so that the client can have their own discovery process. Um, and they don't have to have spent lot, years and years in therapy or be a financial therapist for that matter to be able to access the emotional reality. Um, so I think that's one thing. And the other thing is I do a lot of my own personal therapy and self-discovery. I also practice meditation and go to lots of silent meditation retreats. So I'm pretty self-reflective and have so much room to grow. So that inevitably produces compassion for others and their, where they are in their journey. Right. And that's um, such an honor to be able to actually make the space to step back and let them have their own process and have their own sense of discovery. Now, and when it's appropriate, I'll bring in my own experience. If that helps um, build self-efficacy or create some context for the client. Um, but I, I think having a structure that you can lean into that is really client centered and is not about um, being a person who has the answer, who sees the answer ahead of time. And it's just like directing them in that, towards that, whether it's a product or a tax planning strategy or whatever, because, um, you know, I don't know what you value. You may not know what you really value. Many of us are disconnected from what is most important to us and how we spend our money. And I think that's where the cool power is. And that's where the really, the, the opportunity is, is to create people who are utilizing their wealth in a way that is more meaningful and impactful and actually just makes them happier and more satisfied. I get so excited when we have these types of conversations because um, Meg knows this about me because I think I've mentioned it. But when I was in university, uh, I kind of got my stress relief by going to the bookstores. Like I'd mm. hang out in the bookstores. And back in the day, like the self-help section, it was like a very small section, but it was like really kind of fascinating to me. Mm. And I like, read all these books and it was very uncool. Like, you know, even like, self-help sounds like really like blah but really what it was about was understanding the human condition like mm -hmm. psychology like yeah. how do we recognize our inherent patterns of things that we're not even like aware of and at the time I was studying finance and economics I've only worked in the RA industry and when I was straight out of college I was like I'm never going into finance so boring like <laughs> male dominated it's too serious you know yeah. what I'm saying but then I actually um discovered the REA space and I was like oh I can get behind this like this mm -hmm. makes sense to me like aligning people's values with their money you know mm -hmm. and more and more I really see leaders in the RA industry leading this charge and it being like, it's not just about your money. It's not just about your spreadsheet. It's not right. just about your returns. We're talking about your life. Right. And I feel like if you're not talking about that, you're starting to miss the boat. And I love that you've got it as like this food thing, because like, here's the reality. Like I always use personal trainers because it's like, we know what to eat. We know we need to exercise and yet we don't like yeah. why, you know, yeah. what's the deal. Right. So I, and you and I had had a, a pre-conversation. I loved one of the things that you had said, you said, cause I said to you, listen, you run an RA with a million dollar minimum, just by the way. Okay. <laughs> You're a B Corp. I don't think I've ever seen an RA that's a B Corp. Have you? There's a few of us. I think it's 0.57%. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All RAs are B Corps. <laughs> um, you run a B Corp. 
You have these many stories. You talk about money in a much more accessible way, like with this like thing. And you help clients, which I think is really, really interesting. You've broken it down to who have a progressive mindset. So you're anything but the norm, Mm-hmm. right? You're like, you don't fit into a mold. And when I asked you about that, you said, well, you've always been more comfortable being an outsider than an insider. What has been your experience in building, in creating this, in taking what would be viewed from the outside as kind of risks mm-hmm. and building a business mm-hmm. that maybe you don't have anything to emulate or see in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I think because I was trained as an artist, I have this sense of internal permission and requirement to invent, right? And to not know and to try things on. I mean, a good art studio is a laboratory where you're just trying things and seeing what resonates and where does it come from in your body and your heart um, and your mind. And I think I treat business the same way. The financial industry has a lot of improvement to be made. And I hope that my like um, sort of, I I want a pioneering way that there are other, there are other um, folks in that, in that group. Um, Not as many as I would like, but more hopefully in the future um, is I've had to look outside of the industry for inspiration. So I don't, I might make sure that we're benchmarking to the DFA firm numbers just to make sure I know where we are in alignment with our competition. But um, I don't think the financial industry is working real well. Um, and so I look to um, I look to foundations and their investment strategies as, a, as inspiration, especially the ones that are engaging around equity in a very meaningful way. Um, we look to especially creative agencies. A lot of our clients in the beginning were creative professionals, like creative directors and music supervisors, et cetera. And so I'm very engaged about how do you, how do you do a professional, how do you provide a professional service that is grounded in creativity and innovation? And so that's another thing that we do. And then we engage in, you know, we have a social justice reading at least once a month that's around something around equity that we read as a team and then think about how does it reflect into our work? Because the monoculture is deeply problematic. It's bad for business, right? There's plenty of data now that shows that monoculture, whether it's a bunch of white women or a bunch of white men, it's not good. We need a range of spectrum of diversity around race, gender, age, life experience, you know, the families we come from, because that's how we get better solutions and better businesses. And so I think that's been the way I've assuaged any loneliness or a sense of disconnect um, when I'm in a in a space that is uh, traditionally a finance space. Honestly, I don't go into them very much anymore. I, I don't see a lot of, I don't get a lot of value out of it. Um, so I sort of rely on my on a few things I trust for my own CE and, and um, growth in the finance industry. So I'm really grateful that you all are out there. That's for sure. <laughs> We're grateful you're there. <laughs> Did you have any Georgia like specific experiences when you were working? I think at a wirehouse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you had two stops before yeah. launch founding Modernist. Did you have any specific experiences that just really led you to have like this feeling in your core of like I cannot 
yeah. be there. I cannot do that. Yeah. And like, what was that realization like? And sort of how did you move through it? And, that, and the reason that I asked the question is because, you know, we're three white females speaking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we all are very privileged mm-hmm. and we also work in a predominantly male driven industry. And so mm-hmm. we all have our own stories around that. And when, when speaking with other women um, and minority women in the industry, there's this sense of loneliness. There's this sense of, you know, I don't, no one else is doing it. Maybe I want it. Maybe what I want to do is not right. Or there's also, and not, or, and there's also like really huge barriers and obstacles and also people that are not just not helping you, but are mm-hmm. actually trying to hold you down. Right. Absolutely. So I think like sharing our experiences around past experiences that we've had and how we recognize them and how we moved through them is like for me as a woman, you know, female business owner, mm-hmm. like I always just find such power in, in learning from mm-hmm. other people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know. So the, I'll answer your question, but to start with, I have, um, I, I often look to the civil rights movement um, past and present for my inspiration because there is no one lonelier than the folks fighting those fights. And so um, how to navigate that with grace and kindness and compassion is not easy, um, but there are a lot of models out there to help help us pave that way. And I do the same with the arts, um, whether it's Martha Graham inventing modern dance or um, you know whoever it might be. So I'm 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 very I, I look to those folks. I hold them up to keep me on, in focus. When uh, you know I was at a wirehouse at this wirehouse, very nice people. Like let's talk about an attribute of white culture. Um, they were nice, but they were actively, um, I don't know. Well, I would say they were slyly mocking, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I was one of three female advisors out of 50 advisors. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the other women was a dear friend and super supportive of me and brought me into that, um, company, which I was grateful for because it was 2011 and firms like mine weren't hiring. So there wasn't another place to go. And I was very grateful for that home. Um, There were men there who didn't even know how to talk to me. They wouldn't talk to me because they literally just didn't know how to talk to a woman who had an equitable position, even though I was in training, you know, I was in training. But it was the ongoing doubt about the things that I believed in, that I could charge a healthy fee for financial planning that compensated me for the work that I did for clients. And that compensation could be healthy, that I could, tr- I could pay myself well for the, for the abilities that I bring to clients. That was one thing. They all thought money question was crazy. They're like, why are you asking these questions? I don't understand. You can just like put them right into an annuity or whatever the thing was. Um, so I think that was, I mean, I had a nine month argument with the compliance department at that firm to try and get money quotient approved. And they don't talk about anything about investments, but they were just so stymied by the fact that you would even ask these questions. So, you know, that was also just so so deeply frustrating. Um, and I had an experience with somebody, one of the other advisors in that firm asked me to be a cold caller for him early days in my training. And there is a venerable family owned business in Oregon that has been extremely generous with their employees, a profit sharing plan, 20% a year, like very generous. 
And his plan was to call these people who were nearing retirement and convince them to roll their um, their profit sharing plan into a third annuities, a third stock, a third mutual fund. And I was like, well, but you don't know that they need an annuity. Didn't matter. That was the plan. And I just thought about, you know, annuities are not necessarily bad. They have their place. It's a rare place, I will say. But Social Security is a much better, more efficient annuity than anything you're going to buy in the insurance market. So that it was though it was that accumulation of. I had one client who, um, at the time, who was a uh, drum is a musician and very successful in her business. And she went out to the bathroom during a meeting, came back, and she was like, "Do you feel like an alien here?" <laughs> and at the moment, I was like, "Oh, I'm actually a spy." That's what's going on. Like, this is how I understand how my competition works, the good things that they do, and the really not so smart things that they're doing that are eventually going to undermine them. And we know net assets are flowing out of broker dealers at a rampant pace, as it should. They haven't earned that money, and they should lose it, in my opinion. I love how you describe the process of financial planning as creating an arc of change. Mm. I, it's like, even as I just said that, actually, I got goosebumps from it because I just think it's just so eloquently articulated. And I mean, at its highest form. And I think anyone who's deeply moved by what they do as a financial advisor, and I found that so interestingly enough, when I'm coaching advisors on their marketing, the number one place we started is what's your why? What's your money story? What's the, and what I've discovered working with hundreds of advisors is, there are many, why are we in finance? There's a reason. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? There's a reason. It's mm-hmm. not because you were good at accounting. I can promise right. you. Like, yeah. it's not. Mm-hmm. It's because something happened somewhere in your life where you had this, like, pivotal moment where you decided, I am not going to be this anymore. I don't want this. Or I want to be what different. Or I am not going to be chained down by this. Or whatever that is for you. You know, I, I personally remember being in school and being like, I'm going to get all A's so that I can earn my own money and I don't have to answer to anyone. That came right. from like other stuff. But like right. that was like the motivation there. So when you think about changing your money, your money story, so you kind of essentially came from like the starving artist, right? Around sure. people who, let's just be honest, like in Portland, what you said is like, there's, I found that when I lived there, it's like money is bad, you know, it's like, kind of, it's mm-hmm. when I'm like, money is not good or bad. It's what you use it for, like, mm-hmm. like everything, you know, mm-hmm. what was the change that, what was the thing, the moment, was it a series that like helped you like shift and change and be like, I can do this. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the way my brain works is I often, I just have a realization and it just hits me. I'm like, I don't think about things for very long. I have a very high quick start. I know that in order to get there, there's a lot of subconscious work happening and there's a lot of things that I'm picking up. There's a lot of permission being built that I'm not really even conscious is happening. But um, I, I remember just looking around this, um, second firm, sweet, good human beings, just not a model that was a fit for me. Excellent in the community. There were parts, pieces, parts. I was like, I love your office. I love the way you give a lot of money away. I love your kindness. I love the way you're engaged in the community. Going to take those, put them in my, put my, them in my suitcase and carry them with me to my own firm. Um, I was also so offended by the branding. I just can't tell you at both of those places. I was like, oh, does not have to be ugly and uninspiring. 
if I see that blue again, I'm going to die. Like, I can't do it. You don't want to wear your blue shirt to work, Georgia, like everyone. (laughs) And so I think that was also as a, as a visually oriented person who believes in art and creativity, I just could not bear bad branding anymore. And I knew that I needed to have control of that and be able to work with really smart creatives. Um, to be able to get these messages out because I knew they were resonating. I could feel that people were interested in what I was saying. But how did you get to that message? How did you go from like starving artists can't pay your mortgage to like million dollar minimum firm? Mm-hmm. You're like that's a big leap. What was the, yeah. you know? Well, and that I think the question, the the my answer is there was no leap. There was a series of stair steps. That is what the arc of change is about, right? It's mm-hmm. not. You know, my therapist is a Gestalt therapist. And the way that Gestalt therapy, the theory is that you have this th- series of, of discovery moments and insights and you integrate that insight and then you go on to the next moment of discovery and then you integrate that insight and that's how you make progress. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know, a lot of therapy, a lot of therapy, <laughs> did I mention therapy? <laughs> like, I just think this, um, I want to really destigmatize that because, and sometimes we refer clients for financial therapy or couples therapy. I'm like, this is not my role, but I would love for you to learn more and bring it back to the work. Mm. Um, if that's necessary, sometimes with family members and parents, if they need to care for parents, that's another thing. So I think it's just, it's an ongoing process. And, and that arc is built from a lot of stairs. I think it's so important to normalize these conversations. You know, it's not a bad thing to talk about therapy. It's not a bad thing to talk about self-awareness and self-discovery. And, you know, I heard you talking about, you know, how so many of us, like we bring shame and embarrassment and sadness into, um, we allow that to shape our stories in ways that it doesn't have to shape our stories, right? Mm -hmm. It can power you, but it shouldn't confine you. Right. You feel like there's this, sense that we just can't shouldn't won't don't yes speak about these things Mm -hmm. and we're all on our own journeys and I Candace knows this story I joined entrepreneurs organization I think three Mm -hmm. and a half years ago and you know I was in my mid-30s and owning and running FICOM and feeling really lost you know Mm -hmm. where I started my own business when I was 29 I have wonderful people who have supported me in my life. I have a lot of people who said that they supported me, but actually didn't support me at all as we mm-hmm. all been through similar journeys. And I joined EO because I was like so desperate for this community of people that at least on paper were going through potentially a similar professional experience because they all owned businesses of a certain size. Right. So I joined and I joined a forum which is their um, opportunity to sort of be with yeah, familiar with you. Yeah. So um, when I joined the forum, I was asked the question, you know, why are you here? What do you want to get out of this? Like, what do you want to get out of forum? And I was like, well, I've got a little bit lost in my business. And so I'm really, I'm here for business guidance and advice. And I'm, I'm primarily here for business. Like that was sort of my knee jerk, you know, and some of the seasoned DO people were like, I'm, their answer was I'm entirely here for self-awareness and Mm self-discovery. And I remember thinking like, Oh, am I in the right place? Because I just never, I didn't, you know, I grew up in such a wonderful, warm, loving family. I'm so privileged because of that. 
And also that was not a conversation that we had across the dinner yeah. table. You right. know, we, no one talked about therapy or it was just, you know, and so that wasn't something I was comfortable with. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now fast forward three and a half years and I'm like, I'm looking at the new EOers and I'm like, Oh, you're here for business. Like just wait, business. you know, <laughs> just, exactly. just yeah. wait because the power of having that type of support system is in recognizing your true value and in finding alignment and in generating, you know, power from within and, and normalizing these types of conversations. It's okay to talk about shame. It's okay to talk about embarrassment. It's okay to say, yes, I see my therapist every single week. And it's so like important for my life. (laughs) And it's just like, you know, in this, in, in our industry that we all live and work in, it's so hard to understand like how do we how do we elevate and normalize those conversations when like so much of this industry just doesn't allow for that to happen. Well, we decolonize it. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's when there's a monoculture, we have to actively build the pipeline of people who are going to make it not white male dominated. I, I think that's really the effort. And um, if I, you know, it's about having an internship program in a company that brings in people of color to um, as younger people to see that this is even an option for them. Cause you and I don't feel like we saw anybody a black young black woman definitely never saw anybody. Right. And so 3% of CFPs are people of color. Hmm. Three. I didn't know that the number was that low. Yeah. And I mean, women, it's 23% or 28%, something like that. So um, I think we will produce a better industry with a more um, impactful way of doing business. We have more voices in the mix. It'll be way more interesting too. I mean, just for like satisfaction and growth. So I think there's that. And then I, I believe EO, I, ref, I refer clients to EO a lot um, if they're business owners, just because they need, you need a place to be vulnerable. You need a place to hear that that thing you're struggling with is what other people struggle with. And then we can build our own. I'm part of a group called Women on Water that's, um, the, let's see, 36 of us now, female CEOs from all around Oregon. And I, I'm talking some of the top CEOs. I'm like on the the entry level, like cool, but not very good yet. <laughs> um, core uh, group of folks, and my ability to be around powerful, successful women of a broad range of backgrounds and race as well. I think I just I need to really lay hard into uh, racial equity um, has helped me so much because it, it's just their experience and learning from them like EO helps me get another tool for my suitcase. Um, and that, that I think we construct community around ourselves and we need to lean on that community. You got to trust that community. Everybody's going to be all in. Um, and you construct that however you can. Often we have to construct it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Georgia, I must, I must just say also to anyone who's listening, I'm sure they're hearing it. Your vocabulary is exquisite. <laughs> Like, uh, I think it's that background because you also did writing, like sculpting. Yeah, I'm a creative nonfiction writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of questions, but to start to like close out that are really powerful. But the first is, 
What advice would you give to other advisors who are seeking alignment in their work Mm. uh, with their lives and their values and what they truly believe? Um, I would start start with the highest standards. This is a industry that does not necessarily have high standards for um, education designations, et cetera. I mean, what is the John? Was the John? John Oliver skit where he says you can become a financial advisor as easy as you can become an elf hunter. And um, it's true. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I got my CFP before I even came into the business. I sold that house that I shouldn't have bought and bought an education basically as a CFP. So hold yourself to the highest standards because the more interesting people are going to be there anyway. Um, And then I would say, look for mentorship, but realize when I get somebody saying, can I just hop on the phone with you? I'm like, no, you can't. I need three solid questions that you could not have gotten from an interview I've done. Um, I would love to, I, I really believe in invite and include it's built all into the, into the company, but um, you've got to realize that women mentor at a much higher level and higher rate than uh, men do. And so there is a sense again of domestic labor. Our labor is free. And I'm like, my, I'm here for you, but you got to do your side too. So I think highly researched, um, very, it'll make you a better advisor too. If you can have a meaningful conversation with me where I have aha moments. Right. So I think that's the other piece. And, and around the high standards, it's also your business model. Like XY planning network is super interesting you know, when I first came into the industry, I created an internship, wrote it up, and then just started pitching it to fee-only firms. And I was like, well, you can pay me $15 an hour and I'll just learn from you, right? And as an artist, you do that all the time. I mean, I've had like 40 internships throughout my life, right? But I was like, it was super normal to be like, okay, I'm just going to, you seem interesting. You should hire me to help you three days a week. So I think doing things like that, because if you, if somebody brings me, hey, I want to be your intern, here's my plan. Here's what I want to learn. Here's how much I want you to pay me. It is really easy as a CEO to just be like, uh, okay, great. <laughs> you know, um, as opposed to, I just think there's a lot of, um, do some work for me and I'll do some work for you. Circling back to your vocabulary, uh, advisors who are working right now in an existing firm and really wanting to create change, what's a book that you would recommend? Mm. Um, hope in the dark by Rebecca Solnit. She's, I think, one of the smartest people writing about culture right now. It's all about um, what it means to be an activist during dark times. And I think if you're looking to make change in anything, there's a lot of lessons for us in there. Um, I am, I've read it a million times, but uh, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. I think that's how you say his name. Um, my German's rusty, <laughs> if non-existent. Um, and that's just about what it means to be a creative person. And Rilke writing to this young poet saying, here's what is important. And he talks a lot about solitude and need for quiet. And I think that's really hard for us right now. I, you know, I go on retreat, well, pre-COVID quarterly, um, and I just need to be quiet for days on end. It just helps me figure out what I really think and feel. Um, and then I would say Octavia Butler She's a uh, speculative fiction writer, and I've been reading a lot of speculative fiction by Black women specifically because I want to know how they see the world changing um, because I think they have better, they have a better view of our true nature than I do. 
I keep wanting to veer away from this question, but I'm just going to put it out there because it keeps coming up for me in this conversation, which is what's the difference in your perspective between loneliness mm. and aloneness? Mm. Such an essential question. A loneliness for me, loneliness is when I forget to look inside for home. And when I need home from others, there's nothing wrong with that. It often is a, it's pointing to a, you know, we, we often say that we have an amazing manifesto, if I do say so myself. And one of our lines is <clears throat> our greatest wealth is our personal relationships. So I'm not saying, I, but what I'm saying is when I feel alone, I'm usually needing to connect internally as well as to have a meaningful connection with another person. Not a kind of conversation, but a, let's talk about the meat of who we are and what we're struggling with, a vulnerable conversation. And then aloneness is the best thing in the whole world. I mean, I love seven days of silent retreat is my favorite thing in the world. You want to send me on a spa vacation? I'd rather go to a monastery and just be quiet. So it's really I'll nice. join you there. I feel the same way. <laughs> Um, Georgia, thank you so much for coming on. What does the new school mean to you? Oh, Lord, so essential. Um, I, I think there's this sense of we are all learning, right? There's a very strong idea of beginner's mind and craft and, and Buddhism and mindfulness. So I think this idea that we're all learning, but we often need to create our own school in order to do our learning. Like it is an active method of constructing who our teachers are and the class, the coursework we're going to take on. I love that. I mean, I hadn't even considered that. I love that too. And I just want to honor you, Georgia. I mean, it's so inspiring to be speaking to someone like you who is demonstrating so powerfully, you know, that stories and truth and vulnerability can create such tremendous change and be really effective in creating that change. And for people to be, for me and others to be able to view your success and mm. to see the work that you're doing in this industry, but in such a progressive way is just tremendously inspiring. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure every day. Um, where can people find you? And I know you've got some resources on your website for people that may not be a good fit for a client, but that you still offer some support for. Yes, thank you. So um, modernistfinancial.com and then at modernistfinancial on Instagram. We have a, if you go to the site, there's a section called Modernist University and we just gathered all of our resources there. Um, I strongly believe that everything we do for clients, we should spin out and to the public so that people who do have that DIY internal self-help book reading impulse can, can take those resources and run with them. So I would look at that. And then there's a toolkit you can download um, that has I think four or five different tools. One, how to hold a conversation with other people about money and your money stories and how to transform them. That is great for the holidays especially on Zoom. <laughs> so we have a great newsletter that I absolutely love where we talk about politics and equity and markets, as well as um, music and art that we find really inspiring as a way to ground ourselves in our values and, and taking action around money and values. Thank you so much for coming on, Georgia. It was such a treat. Um, 
I don't know what else to say except for that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>